But there was an alt take where she goes, I'm the fucking witness. Oh, man. <laughs> and she shot it. And, and it was in the script. And it was like so amazing. And I, I'm just quoting. I don't have a potty mouth. I'm just quoting Terry's writing. <laughs> Welcome to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. We have a very special episode today. It is still a requirement that you have watched the entire show. There are spoilers galore. But today we will be presenting you with our interview with Mr. Todd Stashwick, better known on the show as Theodore Deacon. It is a doozy, such a good one. We have a lot of, we have some moments. Uh, oh, this is, this is BP. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of your normal hosts. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain, and I am joined as always by the lovely Cece. Hello. If you wonder why our brains aren't working right, it's because Todd Stashwick basically left us with the inability to speak. <laughs> So we are really, really grateful for all the time that he gave up today, and um, it's going to be a real treat for you guys. Uh, just two two disclaimers. First, we have like a five-alarm feels disclaimer, so you're going to want to make sure, as usual, that you have a box of tissues and maybe, maybe two stiff drinks close by, I think, like two <laughs> yeah. stiff drinks close by, if you partake. And also, you are definitely going to want to stay until the very end. You are not going to want to miss the end of this podcast. And that's all I'll say. So with no further ado, here's our interview with Todd Stashwick. All right, Beep, you want to start off? I do. But first, I just want to say, and I hope this is not like a super weird thing to say, but you just have the best voice. And I just wow. want to that. Yeah. The best you, you know, anytime someone wants to give me a compliment, they never have to preface it with this is a really weird thing to say. <laughs> I feel like I you and a- Allison Down need to like go into reading books on tape. <laughs> oh man, yeah. she her she has like a she has a voice like angry black velvet. <laughs> her voice sounds like what it feels like to sip bourbon. <laughs> oh my god, that is so true. Right, <laughs> right. I just. I just want her to call me at night and hum so that I can go to sleep. <laughs> we'll see if we can make that happen for you. Yeah. yeah. Get you a recording. You can play like, yeah. a, like the rain or the beach, but you'll just have Alice and humming. Yeah, uh, there, was an alt, there was an alt take of, I, I don't know if it ever, there was an alt take and I wish they had aired it, but there's a moment where she turns around, and I think it's in episode nine of the finale where she turns around. And she goes, "Because I'm the witness, right?" And she like does this declarative. <laughs> but in the, but there was an alt take where she goes, "I'm the fucking witness." Oh man! <laughs> and she shot it, and and it was in the script, and it was like so amazing. And I, I'm just quoting. I don't have a potty mouth. I'm just quoting Terry's writing, but. <laughs> Well, we do, so don't worry. It was un, it was unbelievable, and it was such a such a line in the sand. Uh, but to have Allison say it with all that weight behind it oh, was man. amazing. Yeah, yeah, oh. it, it would have been a drop the mic moment for I know, sure. Right, to dig that up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Terry has that take. 
knowing full well that the network probably would never let him use it. But he's like, uh, he wrote it. Let's shoot it. I was, I believe I was in the room. It was amazing. Yeah, there's only one F-bomb in the whole show, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I don't know who said it. I think it was and I'm sure I'm sure Kirk wishes he had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me do it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Ask you questions or just have you? <laughs> yeah, we'll just sit here and listen. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just riff for an hour. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's fine. Any other good former castmate impressions? Um, let me think. Well, Emily, you just have to go. Oh my god, all the time. <laughs> we used to joke because because you know this is so we would all be sitting around craft services talking and then uh just like this and then we would gather around the table and and yell they would yell action and then everybody starts talking (laughs) because we're doing a science fiction show and you whisper on science fiction shows and no one could out whisper kirk because everything so intense (laughs) it's just so intense it was so it was so funny because like because then the project that i did kind of right after that, which, uh, uh, which was Kim Possible, which I never stopped yelling on that. So it was just nothing but, uh, chewing up scenery, but, but at 12 Monkeys, everybody was speaking super quiet. It was very funny. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I, I'm trying to think, oh, okay, here's my, here's my favorite Jones, uh, moment. I think I shared this at a con we're we're coming back from Comic-Con and we were all reading the script of we were on the plane and we're all reading the script I'm laughing already uh, we're all reading the script of the episode that we're flying back to Toronto to shoot we're flying back from San Diego and I'm sitting next to um, Barbara on the plane and the sweetest German uh, most noble woman she's sitting next to me and she leans over and she goes Todd what is pistol whipped? <laughs> I was in heaven. I was like, I get to explain to Jones what pistol whipped means. And made me so and she just asked it like, like, mommy, why is the sky blue? Like it was the it was the cutest it was the cutest question in the world. She's so pure and sheltered. She's so Yeah. Uh um, but yeah, she's, uh, but just the questions that, you know, the Americanisms that she would need, uh, and she lives in New York, she's an American, but there was just some like kind of nerd references that, uh, or action movie references. Cause that certainly wasn't her, uh, milieu prior to 12 monkeys. Um, but so we would have, we would find ourselves having to explain the silliest, uh, things to her. And then, and then, it, and then it's in stark relief to the fact that, like, yeah, we write scripts that say "pistol whipped" in them. <laughs> so, did she yeah. need like fifty percent of Jennifer's dialogue explained? <laughs> it's like, you, so- no, em- Emily did because Emily is not a pop culture junkie, contrary to Jennifer. So, Emily, like, we would, we would Terry and I would torture Emily by dragging her to things like. Doctor Strange uh, in Toronto and like go to the movies on the weekends and that is not her genre so so she truly had to like research things and I love if you ever talk to Emily and get her on the show her explanation for why um, 
why why Jennifer was a pop culture junkie is in the institution, all they had as entertainment was this collection of old DVDs. Mm. Because if you think about her age, she technically would not have grown up in the 80s. Right. The character the character was like a 90s, 2000s kid. Um, and so, and neither, and, and truth be told, neither was Deacon. Deacon was 13 or 14 when the apocalypse hit, and that was 2017. So he just was just a pop culture junkie as a boy. But uh, Emily's, you know, talking to her about it, she's like, yeah, she's like the, the institution. She would just watch all the same uh, 80s movies that they had in their collection in the institution which is why she's addicted to pop culture, because it was an escape window for her brain. Oh, that's such a great headcanon. That's awesome. Isn't that fun? Isn't that yeah. fun? Yeah. yeah. So was that, was Deacon like sitting back with like an old DVD copy of The Breakfast Club and just found like Bender was like his? <laughs> like, well, actually, actually, I, you know what, and, and obviously there, there's a lot to unpack there, but it, it was... His father obviously related to Bender because mm-hmm. his father would have been uh, an 80s kid. Mm-hmm. And so his father, watching The Breakfast Club, saw another kid with cigarette burns on his arm. Right. And, and I think Deacon got that song because his father would sing it um, oh. and because his father related to Bender and, you know, passed on the scars that his father gave to him to Deacon. Um, and so that song was resonant because it was the song his father sang. Oh God, but that's like soul crushing because he that can't is. forget his father and like what his father did no, to him. Exactly. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. You already yeah. made us cry enough I'm, in the finale. I'm, you're welcome. <laughs> See, oh, Terry told us it was just because that song was free. So Well, sure. I, I mean I can give you the whole story of how that song So so we were walking to, uh, oh, I know where we were. We were walking to shoot the scene where Jones meets uh, Hannah for the first time. And, uh, and so we were walking, just got out of the van, we we're in the woods, and we're walking. He's like, oh, so, so I got this, you know, there's this scene where you're going to be naked, and you're cleaning a gun in the armory, and it's the end of the world, and you're just like drunk, and you, you just have given up, you're, you're over it all. Um, and then I, the, my two additions were, I said, well, he should be singing. And then it was a, a question of what should he be singing? And I go, and the second thing I request is instead of cleaning a gun, can I be sharpening my knife? Because there's two things. That's how we met the character. Mm-hmm. And so visually, if he thinks he's going out, you know, to, to, to call that back. And there's something really off putting about a man sharpening a knife near his junk. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I think yeah. my husband like shuddered. <laughs> yeah. And so and so I said, well, what well, what would what should he be singing? And then uh we just started bouncing around a bunch of ideas and then he said, Well, you know what Universal owns is Don't You Forget About Me. And then that was kind of a divine providence. Like that song became a Deacon's theme song, but it also came to mean so much because he very much was the bender of the group and and you're talking about a show that erases people from history and a man who doesn't have his purpose because he's not on the word of the witness. It just kept, it kept, uh, it was a nesting doll of references uh, to resonate for this guy. And then the whole eighties of it all. uh, 
it just it just it, it was just a perfect fit. It was like one of those meant to be moments that came out of a creative conversation on the way to shoot a different scene. Wow. And also just like cuz you're the secret weapon, right? Like yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Did you yeah. guys ever have um, like a backstory or explanation as to why Deacon isn't on the word of the witness? Um, well, yeah, because it was dramatically interesting. No, um, <laughs> you ran out of room the, on the paper. There's, well, there's. I think there's several. There's several ways one could do it. You could say that um, Ethan was killed before he wrote it. You could say um, it was an intentional blind spot by the primaries so that he could be a secret weapon mm-hmm. or the idea that we, you know, I think in many ways Deacon's character is very much about choosing one's own destiny. And if there isn't, you know, a, a visual representation of what one's destiny is and, and he's picking a lane, like you can be a good man or you can be a bad man, which is his whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to not have, that answer laid out in front of you in so many in stark relief on a big piece of paper that says you're the good guy well then <laughs> then you can kind of if like if you see it in black and white you surrender to it and you go oh yes but this you know for his arc anyway i think it was much more interesting and challenging here's a guy who's about ego he's a he thought his purpose was this and then he discovered it was that when everything that he thought he was here for was taken away and then taken away and then taken away. So now what? And I think him not being on the word is a now what? And I also think, going back to my you know, half joke, uh, it is more dramatically interesting to yeah. not have him on there. If everybody else is, to, to not have him. And, and I think there was also a, a thing with the writers of figuring out how Deacon did fit into the big picture because other people's paths were a little more clear. Uh, and I think his character was much more of a wild card, and that's how he played out. And it kind of left him, I mean, when you're talking about considering his arc, you know, being, am I good, am I bad, or do I have to be one or the other, not having that black and white, like, leaves him adrift in the yeah. in that conundrum. So, like, you have yeah. to decide. You don't get to play. You know, everybody else is about, like, is it fate or is it choice? Is it fate or is it choice? You don't even have a fate. No. So you no. Ha- you have to choose. And for the longest time, he didn't see himself as a bad guy. He just relished the bad things that he was doing for good reasons, like for good purposes. Uh, He thought, I mean, if if I'm going to be in the apocalypse, I might as well, if this is the hand I'm dealt, I might as well have fun playing the game. So if I have to kill people to keep 200 people alive, if, if there's 200 immune that I'm keeping alive, None of them are going hungry, and they're safe, and they're alive in this hellhole that is 2043 or 2032 or 35, like whatever. Um, I'm keeping them alive because I couldn't keep my brother alive. Right. And I'm now hell-bent on keeping other people alive. So everybody called him, and we actually wrote stuff about this. Everybody called Deacon the monster when Jesus... Uh, Jones slaughtered Spearhead to try and save Hannah. Like, like, but I'm the monster because I smile when I pull the trigger. So if I had a furrowed brow and acted all put upon like, like, uh, like Ramsey, then it's okay to yeah. kill as many people as he killed. Yeah, you know, it's we just 
recorded our pod yesterday about Spearhead and we were saying mm-hmm. we we actually talked about when you see Foster and Jones and they are slaughtering people yeah. versus Deacon is it yeah. is it just is it just because they look showered and they have white tablecloths um yeah. or they're stating like lofty goals that we yeah, uh, so how, yeah. how is how is the killing of the west Se- or like literally the west 7 quarantine district how is that any worse than slaughtering everybody at spearhead cuz she looted the place yeah <laughs> she yep. she stole the generator like how is it any different except you know she does it with a heavy heart and Deacon does it with a light heart, but a light heart on the surface because beneath it, his heart is breaking because he couldn't save his brother. So a question. So I guess I had just thinking big picture in terms of Deacon's arc, you know, in season two, he says his loyalty died with the 7 billion. And so I guess I had, I had always Big picture thought about Deacon's arc as someone who ultimately finds his purpose in this loyalty for this found family. But but do you think it's more he just transfers who the loyalty is to, like from the West 7 to Team Splinter? I think Deacon couldn't give a crap about saving the world if he was just keeping these 200 people alive when you meet him. And he was going to, by any means necessary keep the 200 strong and and you know what if you're willing to kill for him and steal for him welcome to the club right uh right. stick out your arm and receive your brand um but i think the idea of uh, you know because the world took his brother away from him the world took his mother away from him the world uh damaged him deeply and so he was like screw the world i'm going to take what i want and i think that's what changed, is his loyalty to a cause as opposed to a lifestyle is what changed. Interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, he, like, they had, as he said, like, booze and women, and and uh, it was, you know, the West 7 was, it was a, a militia, if you will. But it was like, again, I'm keeping 200 people alive. So that's no small shakes in this in this world of looters. It's like, we just were outgunning other people. And we were immune. Right. So when do you think was the turning point? For Deacon, when he decided to be selfless? Yeah. Yeah, when he believes in the cause. I think it was obviously season two. And I think and he literally says, and then throws up saying it, let's go save the world. <laughs> you know, as we do. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, I think and you know, and, and we were shooting that, the naked scene. Poor, poor Aaron had to see me in a sock. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's how we do it. That's how we roll. Um, so uh, so that scene, um, I think I, I, I pitched in the room the line, uh, I'm probably going to misquote myself, but uh, you probably have watched it sooner than I have, which is, uh, uh, Jesus, you even talk like him. And that was a line I asked Terry, if I could put in there, just to reinforce this idea that not only does he look like my brother, he says things like my brother. My brother was my was my compass, and my brother was my Jiminy Cricket, and I don't have that anymore. And when he died, uh, that's when I think in the backstory, I, I you know I had to devise for Deacon, which was the foreman in my brain was was hired muscle to guard the West Seven, and. 
when the when my brother was trying to sneak on to this is again none of this is canon this is Stashwick canon. Mm-hmm. Um, Perfect. My brother was sneaking on to the West Seven quarantine to to steal medical supplies for. Uh, the the group of survivors that we were kind of banding together with and the foreman just slaughtered him and then I just vowed my revenge is you took my brother I'm going to take everything and the foreman was just a hired gun so he's just like screw that I'm not I don't care much about these people they're not going to pay me enough to watch the West 7 so he skedaddled and I went in and, and wreaked havoc on the West 7 quarantine district. So it was in retaliation for the death of my brother. It wasn't just, hey, look at a bunch of infected, let's kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in retaliation. So it was, so the West 7, it, the why he wears it as a badge is it's a remember the Alamo and it's remember my brother. That's why we brand ourselves with it. That's why we named ourselves that uh, because it was, it's my Alamo. That's so interesting. So, so it wasn't just, oh, we're, we're the scary group that killed all those people. No, it's you guys took my brother from me. I'm punishing you for it, and I'm never going to forget that, which is why I named the group the West 7, which is why I brand us the West 7, because it's like putting my brother's name. And then I found my brother bloodied and destroyed. And so that's why, if you look closely at Deacon's jacket, I tore a piece of my brother's jacket and carved the initials seven into it and then strapped it to my right arm. So if you look at Deacon's jacket, his right arm has a swath of leather with a seven carved into it and it's, it's strapped to his arm. So he always carries it with him. Oh, that's such a fun detail to look out for. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to what you just brought up about that line that you added in that season two scene where you're saying Nicole and you even talk like him yeah. um, in demons in the deleted scenes, but I guess it's an, actually an extended scene of that final mm-hmm. conversation between Deacon and Cole. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was a line there that is in the extended version that it, I forget who says it, but we are never going to be brothers. Cole says that. Yeah. Which to me landed like that has as much that has to do with both of them right like mm-hmm. your your brother that you lost and yep. and and for Cole referring to Ramsey Ramsey yeah sure and then they agree to be friends yeah and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about that scene. I, I don't know if it was, and it ended up being kind of like an editing shorthand because when Deacon is in that final moment and he says, I did it for them, you know, he, there's yeah. like, um, they make a point of contact with every single one of those characters. Yeah. Yeah. But so if you, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So that, that was the, that was in the courtyard of the castle in Prague. It was supposed to be England, but yeah, Prague. It's very revealing that Cole realized that Deacon's pain comes from the loss of family. And, um, and I, the reason he took a shine immediately to Cole when he meets him in Atari uh, is because of that immediate, oh my God, it's like staring at my brother again. And he was um, trans, what's, transposing, what's the word? Projecting. Transference. Uh, oh, that transference. Works, yeah, I was, I, was pro- I was projecting my brother, which is why... I so wanted things to work out with Cole and I was, I was kind of grooming him to go, no, you're going to be sit at the right hand of the brother, right? You're going to fill in that piece that is missing in my soul. So I think I just kept wanting him to be that for me because I so desperately needed it. And no one else was filling that 
whole. Oddly, in many ways, Jennifer did, because she was much more of a sibling to me than Cole was allowing himself to be. It seemed like at first it was really serving a purpose for Cole, though, as well, that he, you know, something that he wasn't getting from Ramsey. And well, so he was, was getting, well, he to, was, you know, yeah, he was feeling, he was feeling um, part of something. So you get a young kid who's on his own as, as his own sort of scav, and then we just give him a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think, I think, you know, I think whether they liked it or not, they, Cole and, and uh, Deacon enjoyed each other. They, they, they respected each other's chutzpah and, and, and obviously, you know, there's the whiffs of the love triangle there. But it was just one night. It was just one night. But oh, what a night. <laughs> it um, wasn't for Deacon, though. Oh, man. It wasn't oh, I know. for me. I know. I know. I know. I know. But, but you know what? And in many ways, uh, and we talked about the scene, I think she she's severing ties, and she had to say the harshest things possible to draw lines, right? Right. Uh, and so I think she, and, and if you watch Amanda, because people came down on her for that moment, uh, but if you watch, you cut back to, to they cut back to Cassie, and Terry does this a lot, especially with uh, Cassie. You see immediate remorse on her mm-hmm. face right after she says it. Yeah, it's her <laughs> And so, yeah, and, and Amanda's amazing at playing, you know, the line behind the line. Um, and so in the editing, she, you see she's doing it for necessary reasons, and and and. No, and the love of her life is Cole, and and always should be. Uh, But she was being harsh, obviously, to protect herself, to protect Deacon from the world that they live in now. Like, there can't be attachments. It's just not healthy. Mm -hmm. I think I am glad that they didn't go full-blown love triangle, to be honest. I just, I think that I'd to see Deacon love somebody. You know what I mean? And I think he did love Cassie in his own way. Yeah, no, he absolutely did. But even with Kat, it's, uh, which it was interesting because, so, and I think that's, I mean, there's something also just very adult about it, like yeah, given, yeah. given, given the stakes yeah. and giving the life and yeah. death. And if you, right. I mean, that not only is adult and that maybe these things happen, but also just in the way, like Deacon's very also human, like yeah. the way that he reacts to it. Cause you see that yeah. he's crushed and then you find yeah. yourself when she's like, well, I see that you had to do this. He's like, oh no, 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 this was personal. And you're kind no, of yeah, like, no. Am I yeah. fist pumping that? Oh, I'm fist pumping <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But yeah. on the other Make hand. Make no mistake, yeah. Yeah, but when you go to like the end of the series and you have that line that Cassie says to Deacon, you are a good man. Ugh. Ugh, like. So good. Because that's what he fought. So hard. <laughs> that's what he fought so hard. And. It, 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 it's like she was reading his mind because he doesn't know her. He hasn't been through those things with her yet. Uh, so he doesn't know that about himself because that's the demon that he's fighting is, am I my father? Am I enjoying this too much? Am I relishing? My father was, he was a sadist. I mean, but it was because that's what he was taught. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just the sins of the father, sins of the father, sins of the father over and over and over again. And so it's like, can I break free from that? And, Look, if people are going to make me the bad guy, I'll live up to it. And then until he runs into a situation where he can be selfless and self-sacrificial and to have this woman read, it's like he just meets this woman and she says to him the exact thing he needs to hear because he doesn't believe it about himself. Right. And in some ways, uh, it's it's interesting because you have sort of that backstory 
of Deacon having this like idealized version of Cassie because that was the person yeah. who watched on the yeah. news as a kid. Yeah. She but, was she was a lighthouse. Yeah. But this yeah. moment before he knows her, what she says to him, like that's what's real, right? Like that's what yeah. he should hold on to. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And she's <laughs> so the doctor. Good. She's the doctor. She says the right thing to heal him. Yeah. Going back, so it's interesting because, like, as you talk about it, you know, nature versus nurture is such, you know, a thread that runs yeah. through all four seasons. Um, but I guess I hadn't I, – I don't know why I hadn't thought – uh, so like on point and how Deacon's journey is really grappling with that and how much his yeah. father. Um, and so can you walk us through like one of the scenes that I remember watching and just being like floored with how did he pull all of that off <laughs> is uh, the, is the jail scene when you're in Titan uh, season three. Yes. Um, so can Amazing you tell us a little acting? Can I please? Oh, thank yeah, you. Period. Just unbelievable. So will you walk us a little bit through sort of the conception of that? And, and you know, were, was it kind of starting in the writer's room or is that something that you also talked through and just how you went around, like, went about executing that? Well, it was, there was a lot of things that went into that scene because I wanted – it all started with uh, – I get a text from Terry and saying, basically, get in shape like you've been stuck in prison for nine months. <laughs> so it was like, so I, I went into uh, physical conditioning to, to just kind of look a bit emaciated and look a little uh, broken uh, as if I've been fed gruel and having to do, you know, only prison yard exercise, like that kind of thing. And so that was a mental, that was a physical preparation with like trainers and, and nutritionists and no bourbon or pizza. Uh, so that was one half of it. And then the other half of it was, uh, and you're, you're doing the scene, you're playing your father. So I was like, okay, so this is, these are two brand new things that I've never had to do on television. And his father doesn't exist in the context of the show. You know what I mean? He's not. No, we've never met him. Person. And so, so I think th that was all them. And there was originally talk of like casting an actor to play it uh and then we you know he was like who do you think would be a good to be deacon's dad and 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 so you know i love the casting game and who i might get a chance to do scenes with uh is always fun um but i think ultimately the show has kind of a fun way of having characters confront themselves uh a lot and there's sort yeah. of a thematic thing jones meets jones jennifer meets jennifer uh Cole meets Cole. Mm -hmm. uh, Cassie meets her mother, uh, and she sees her younger self. So there's a lot of that. Oh, and then and then there's the cat and mouse with Cassie hiding behind corners with the other Cassie in the other room. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there was a... And this was a way of doing that, but in a, a different way that it isn't literally, hey, look, it's other Deacon. You know, it was like... It told more of a story, which was... Deacon confronting himself because I don't think Deacon hallucinated himself. I don't think he hallucinated his father in the room. I think what you're seeing is the argument he's having in his head externalized. And me as an actor, I chose to make that what he was, was the voice of doubt. So what Deacon was challenged with was the doubt and fear that he has in his head. And in order to, 
survive, he needed something to fight, and the only thing he ever wanted to fight in his life was his father. And so if he could resurrect that demon in his head, um, that give him that give him something to fight against because his father is going to say all the things you're weak you're this you let your brother die you you all of these things it gave me something to fight and then when he comes through the crucible of being on titan being starved being separated because deacon's a social creature he is not a lone wolf uh he doesn't like being alone um he realizes after he fights and wins, he isn't his father. And if he can get out of here, he's going to prove to everybody that he isn't. So he literally, instead of hallucinating, he kind of more for himself has literally personified his own insecurities so that he could direct it all in one place. Yes. If I can defeat this doubt and fear, uh, I can survive this. And what his father represented his father was that negative voice in his head that told him, you're not a good man. You're, you're bad. You're bad. You're a bad man. And if I can defeat that, that can give me a will to live. Cause his father kept saying, just give up, just give up, just give up. And, and there's that moment where he, he throws the medicine away and goes and does that first painful pull up. Oh yeah. Uh, and says, no, I'm not going to, surrender you're wrong and i'm going to prove you're wrong by getting healthy and getting out of here and living through this i don't know what this guy has planned for me but uh i'm going to live through it so i don't think i don't think he really saw ghosts i mean well sure in in so much as like i think it's all he's it's a conversation he's having in his head it's a little golemy yeah, but then also it seems like an inter- yeah that interesting turning point when he's picturing his father as himself, but he yes. comes at the end of that sort of crucible recognizing that he is not his father, right? And, and the physical Absolutely. representation is the face is now different, like at the end yes. of that whole – and he yeah. backs up. And, and, and this actually gets me a little choked up thinking about it. He comes to forgive his father, okay. which is – the hardest thing to do mm-hmm. is when he, his father shows him the scars and it's Deacon remembering, oh, right, I may have blocked that out, that my father was abused by his father and his father's cigarette burned his arms, just like Bender. Uh, no, De- Deacon's father's father, cigarette burned Deacon's father's arms. Right. So... He said, my father gave me scars, and that's all I have to give to you. That's, that's, that's all I knew. And so I think here's, and you now as an adult looking at that, it was therapy where he's going, he's seeing examples now of benevolence in Cassie, in Jennifer, in Cole, in, in Ramsey even, in, in Jones. He's seeing people acting selflessly, which he didn't really see. He didn't see it with his with his father, he didn't see it in the apocalypse, except maybe with his brother. And then the universe said, screw that. I'm taking that from you. Right. So it's almost like he didn't know. One, he may not have known it was an option. No. Two, it certainly wasn't an option for him. And no. three, even if he had seen it to some degree, he assumed that people operated with ulterior motives. So that it was not genuine to start with. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, and so for him to see those things and then look at and the, the actor they cast as my father had such a, such a sweet countenance mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and this warm red beard and, and 
and for him to go, but you don't look like me, and then he shows the scars, and then when his father sings the song, because it's his father that was always singing the song, and and so it's in Deacon's head always, and and now you go, oh my God, my father sang that song because he's the one who connected with Bender when he was a little boy. He escaped into the movies. Maybe that's the one good thing his father gave him is a love of eighties movies. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Well, and it's funny you bring that you bring that up about, um, and I guess, and I don't mean to keep coming back to nurture versus nature, but we were that quote about how everyone has two wolves inside them. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about how you know, in part, it's the choices. Part of it is the choices you make and which wolf you feed, right? Mm-hmm. But the other part is who is around you. Yeah. Um, and, and how does that affect which one is fed? And so like what you yeah. just described is that, you know, Deacon growing up with, with a father who, who abused, every, you know, his, him and his whole family. His mother and his, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Ramsey lays that story out in season two. Yeah. Well, he yeah, watched young Deacon. And then Ramsey called the police to save us. I, it's just, It's man. just, yeah. Peel the <laughs> Yep, peel the onion. Yeah. And it'll make you cry. Yeah, yeah it will. Yeah. It does a lot. Sometimes on yeah. this podcast, Todd. Yeah. Well, I get it. <laughs> Have you had any other, um, just speaking of crying, any other scenes yeah. where either you were either acting in them or later watching them, whether they were about Deacon or not with Deacon on this show that you were, that kind of hit you similarly, like the, like emotionally? I cannot uh watch the the plaintive cry that Aaron Stanford gives after he shoots Ramsey gets he wails from the bottom of his soul and you know the the boy can act it's like it's just it was just stunning and and picturing that moment with him just it's like it's Michelangelo's David when you think of or not David uh the Christ with with Christ lying there in Mary's arms and mm-hmm. and and it's this beautiful picture in this in the snow and and when Aaron just wails at the loss of the his one true connection he said what what he said my 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 conscience dies he has a line about killing Ramsey mm-hmm. the one person to stop me or I forget the line but the only conscience like, I've ever I ever had I ever had yeah yeah and he in that moment wrecks me um I also Especially <sighs> looking back from the finale and knowing what yeah. Ramsey that is. That yeah. he's oh, killing. God. We haven't done it's that so, he's yet. Sacri- he's sacrificing himself. Yeah. And then the other scene, uh, I couldn't get through. Luckily, they, they actually used a dry-eyed take um, because it, w- it was more restrained and then they let the audience feel more than... If, look, if, I often feel if a character is sobbing, sobbing, sometimes he's doing or she's doing all the work and the audience doesn't get to feel. But if you can show that verge of, it's far worse. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but the scene where I am literally, and it's going to, you're going to get me right now, but um, in Prague, we were shooting, my last scene of shooting on 12 Monkeys was me saying goodbye before my head was cut off. And so I literally, these were the last words I spoke to my castmates in character was <laughs> yeah, just, like, just walk it off take a minute yeah 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 oh so 
So it was like yeah. it was like my my four seasons of working with these people, and I'm sitting there looking at them saying, "And I'll do it all again." Was uh-huh. not acting. It was like it was Todd saying, "Can we can we go back and do it again, please?" Because this was the best job I've ever had, and so to have to look at those guys, it was so rough. So you guys had shot the finale scenes first. Uh, well, we shot a bunch of stuff. We, I said my goodbye to 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 Cassie as Deacon from the past in Toronto, and then we went to Prague to shoot all the exteriors in August of 2017. Okay. And so, because of location specific, but it just worked out that my final scene on the call sheet shooting was Deacon kneeling there looking at all of them. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Having to say goodbye. And, and look, that's also, that's also really good planning on the part of whoever organized that, that day shoot because... It wasn't acting. I, I didn't have to act in that scene because the character and the actor were doing the same thing in the same moment. Where I was looking at, I was looking at Barbara. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I literally a special connection with her. You've mentioned her with Barbara. Yeah. Oh, I love Barbara. Well, no, I just have some stories. But I mean, looking at all of them. I mean, looking at. Uh, I I always call. Uh, I always call Amanda Scarecrow because uh, I'll miss her most. Um, (laughs) But uh, Amanda and I just, we share a sense of humor. And so of, of the cast, she and I were always uh, to this day uh, sending each other jokes and, and uh, sending, texting each other stupid, stupid things and uh, just giggling like children. Um, So, you know, you, you get a specific connection with every actor, and sometimes it's the characters that bond in a different way than the actors bond, and uh, and I just loved each and every one of them. I just, uh, I got to see when I was up in Vancouver doing Kim Possible, I got to hang out with Kirk, because he's up there doing Arrow, and, and he and I uh, grabbed a bite and a drink, and, and so, you know, you spend four years in a submarine with people, uh, you tend to you, you 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 bring their scent with you wherever you go, and so going back to your initial question was uh, the most emotional for me was that scene. That scene was hard for me to get through because it was me talking to these people that I love, and so it was beautifully written, and it was so sparsely written. Mm-hmm. Like, there wasn't it was there wasn't a lot of dialogue. Uh, but yeah, I was like saying goodbye to the character too, and then he's dead. <laughs> like, oh, man. And then, no. So I had I got to shoot Deacon's return first, which kind of makes sense for what's going on in it, his head, right? Chronologically, chronologically, <laughs> right. I ex- I experienced it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, now we're gonna now we're just gonna cry twice as hard when we watch I know. that scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Todd, you you watched the episode, I'm assuming afterwards. Oh, I did. I did. Yeah. Did you also want to harm someone for that uh, cover of "Don't You Forget About Me" that they plopped <laughs> there at the end? Oh, we, when when Kelsey uh, Kelsey Carter, who recorded that, um, you know, I'm I'm such a fanboy of. I'm very lucky because I get to be fans of people that I get to work with or participate with, and when they put Kelsey's music in the first in season two, I believe. Uh, she did. She wrote a song like uh, 
the uh, it's something about the moon and it's 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 all about getting back to you and then she's like I'd hop in a time machine so she if you listen to the lyrics they're actually written to specific it's the 1950s scene stuff I think and she wrote she recorded a song for the show and so I met her at uh, we did a Paley Center event and I immediately met her if you guys haven't heard her music she's fantastic oh you have you've seen it in the show but you should yeah. go seek out <laughs> seek out her other music but uh, she and I immediately bonded because um, I'm an audiophile and uh, and uh, and then she invited me I have a part in a music video of hers called Easy Tiger uh, so I play a little 1960s record executive in a, in a music video of hers. Um, and so I bonded, uh, with her really well. And, and, um, then when I got to see a, a rough cut of that scene and to hear her version of, to have, to have Kelsey, who I adore sing Deacon's theme song meant so much to me, Todd. And then tonally that was Deacon's funeral and having Absolutely. that song be the thread pulled through all that post and he ain't coming back because he's been paradoxed. You can't save him. Made him present in every one of those moments because of her haunting rendition drifting through those scenes. It was just, it meant so much to me uh, because of who sang it. And then it meant so much how they purposed it in the show. Yeah. It's so, and then yeah, Yeah. and then to actually have the legitimate version show up in the finale was just unbelievable. So in season four, I understand that the writers basically had planned out seasons three and four in one. Yeah, same time. Yeah, but for you, as the scripts are coming out and you're filming season three, it's quite a. For Deacon's arc, it's quite a roller coaster because you've got you think he's you think he's been left behind and that he's turned to the other side, but he actually yeah. hasn't. And then we right. then he dies, and then he try like in probably yeah. the biggest fist pumping moment of this series comes back. Oh my god! Right. So <laughs> yeah. what? Right. Like so I mean, good. so good. So, but what did you know? As you're having to play the scenes, like, so what did you know when? So if, De- for example, when Deacon is talking to Olivia and we think that he's turned, do you, Todd, know in the next couple scripts that's actually not true? And so you're playing yeah. that at two different, okay, you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, as an actor, there's, you know, there's something we call the, the, uh, the new truth. Like, I have to, I can't, I can't, I have to play it like I've turned in the scene. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Because, I mean, unless you intentionally want the audience to know that, no, no, wink, wink, until I'm literally winking at Jennifer to let her know I haven't, uh, the audience, there's no fun unless they buy it. They have to buy that he's he's been an opportunist and he feels left behind and he's he's finally like, screw them, I'm going to help you. Uh, you were right about me. And, and the writers did a masterful job of, of going, wait a minute, actually, you know what? It's plausible. The, 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 the breadcrumbs have been laid that absolutely this guy could have said, screw this. These, these people abandoned him yet again. Like with not being on the word and even going back to the, you know, the rejection from Cassie and all those little pieces where they've almost like, she made me soft. You're not important. Yeah. Or it's like preying on that insecurity. And so you're like, yeah, 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 absolutely. But when, (laughs) 
when you so the thing that makes me laugh in the finale is that scene when um Ramsey and Cole are in the car and they're, pre- yeah. they're pretending you go through the radio <laughs> and yeah. really there's no song playing. So for when right. you're filming your triumphant Deacon moment, it's not really playing, right? So you just have to picture it in your head. <laughs> and then don't you forget? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not. You're th- there was no loudspeakers playing the song that we could. <laughs> That Got we it. could walk to. Uh, uh, I'll give you some more. Um, here's some more trivia. Here's some more Easter eggs. Um, there's that moment, and, and we I worked it out with Jeff Scoville, uh, who would be a great guest for you guys to get on. Now, Jeff was Cole's stunt double. And so your brother, moment, right? My brother. At the end. Uh, my brother. And so <laughs> when I'm walking towards uh, Cole and Ramsey, and the last we had – there was one uh, of the monkeys reaches for me and I just sort of don't even look at him and machine gun him. Yeah, that was Jeff. That was, that was Jeff. <laughs> and we, and we worked it out. Cause I, cause it's so funny. Cause I, cause I made the, dis- <laughs> like, I was like, you know what? Deacon's not going to shoot. He's not going to shoot. He's got, he's got his posse. He's just going to stand there and make a whistle and be a badass. Let them all shoot. Cause, cause he doesn't have to, but I'm like, I got to get one round off. And so make it special. So it's like, Make him not look. Have him just just so good at this that he just and then he shoots. <laughs> he sort of, it's like he gets to put the, the last dollop of frosting on a cake that other people made. What? Yeah, I made this. Um, <laughs> which sort of goes into the the swagger of an old deacon. Yeah. So that and that's. I mean, that's so funny because I. I can't tell you how many. I'm just going to be a dork. I've rewound that little moment like five times oh, because yeah. I love it <laughs> so much. But it's also the seat. That's also the moment because, right, the first time you watch it as an audience member, you're like, what the hell's going on? And you like yeah. forget. It's like the first time Jennifer comes back again and she's like, oh, you guys yeah. forgot we're in 2043. And I, yeah. and I did, right? And so, yeah. but that. That swagger moment, like those like physical details yeah. with like the Humphrey yeah. Bogart cigar and that little yeah. swagger, like did it. I'm like, oh, this is the old deacon. Mm-hmm. It was the old deacon. Yeah. And they also took some gray out of my beard. <laughs> <laughs> no. We all do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would like to say I have some beef with the editor of that episode. Because okay. as self-proclaimed fairy gift mother of this show, <laughs> there is not a moment where, like, a person is not blocking you. Yeah, that we- amazing reveal. Like, you get more of, like, your kind of face in the cigar, but... I, I was going to try to pull that because I'm in love with it. And <laughs> yeah. I, I, I take issue, Todd. I would like to have my complaints <laughs> elevated. She was. Yeah, she I was... think that the one gift would be when he throws the cigar and starts walking towards them. Exactly. Yes. Because that, that's, in, that's in full view. She was trying to gift that for when we were that's we so announced true. that you were coming on. And then she's like, someone's head is always in the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, because it's kind of fun because it teases it then, too. It's yeah. like you get it. Well, you know he's coming because of the music. And then and then Cole's really genuine laugh when he recognizes what's happening before oh, you so see good. it happen. Yep. When, and when Aaron just leans his head back and just has this belly laugh. <laughs> um, he's the audience at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, we all audience. picked up on it. We were like, okay. And so Jennifer's good. intro is just, good just morning, so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> And the face back for to radio. her, uh, yeah, back to her uh, pop culture references. Oh, well, that was the other thing is I, I, you know, when talking about that, I, you know, I was, I was a huge champion. I said we, we have to have Max back because uh-huh. as, as a big signifier, like there's a few things that represent 
deacon from from 2043 yeah, and that's and the old West that it's the, the wool yeah the wool collar uh wool collar bomber jacket and the scarf um max it was just like him and max that was so because that's how you met him she's the one who brought deacon into the story because mm-hmm. she's like they found we, we found cole mm-hmm. so like we meet deacon with max so it would make sense that when she shows up you're like don't tell me <laughs> like it's such a, it's such a it's such a rumble over the hill you know mm-hmm. and now every turn at the turn of the tide um and then the other thing that i uh i wanted to make sure was in there was the the powder of the the daughters so you'll see deacon sitting there when he said we do trade with the daughters he holds up the little powder vial oh yeah uh, from atari poured, from atari yeah and then and then just getting back to that old swagger the uh the thing about deacon season one is he's it's it's all um defense mechanism yeah he's just in defensive mode it's all shell it's all shell it's all shell so it's cocky and there's a there's a cadence to his voice because he's he's playing you know the motorcycle leader he's Mm -hmm. he's pretending and so uh by the time you know he gets his head cut off there's no artifice there's no swagger he tries to put it on to stall for uh olivia so that because he knows somewhere uh adler is trying to get that vest fixed so that he can beam it to uh he can beam it to uh cole so that's why deacon's vamping there uh what does he say he says it's a it's a one woman show for an audience of one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't want to listen to another one of her speeches. <laughs> no, yeah, he's trying to put on that old swagger again, but A, he's really terrified because he knows he's marching to his death. And then B, uh, he doesn't, he's just not that guy anymore. It's kind of the first time that, that I almost said Lincoln, whatever. <laughs> wow. He's he's just my favorite character on the show, whatever. Um, I almost, <laughs> he and Jennifer. Um, well, he is the great emancipator, so. Yeah. So I, I was just saying of Deacon, um, it's almost like this is the first time that he truly leaned into fate. Because he knew yeah. what was about to happen and he did it anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Fate, um, fate in some ways, but he's also the architect of it. Like, he's the one, well, with, with Jennifer, but he's the one who gives the knife to Jennifer, which is always what we go round and around and around about on the show, right? Like, fate, yeah. when yeah. It, it's how much people have free will and how much is, quote unquote, fate when all of this is a circle and some of it is of their own making. Like, it makes my head hurt. <laughs> but A hundred percent. And knowing that... It's it's the last card he has in his deck. And if this works, if he sacrifices him, like he said to Jones in in the uh in the Nazi episode, look, if this all works, yes, I had to kill your husband, but if this all works, you guys are arguing over the dishes and me and my brother have a bar and we're raising a glass to all the people we didn't have to kill. So the last person he had to kill to hopefully make this work was himself. So the the irony being, his the final stroke of Deacon's long storied career of killing people was letting himself be killed, wow. which is a gamble. If Hoping to God that these guys. I know. I keep. I feel like not keep... responding and being like, "What is wrong with these people? And why aren't they having a conversation?" Because we're losing. With me? We're losing the it's... ability to speak. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we spend a lot of time 
like laughing on here, but also, I mean, you just you have left me speechless several times. Where I'm just like, okay, hurry up and populate, brain, so he doesn't think you're not listening. I know, Todd. Todd, if we could just if we could have you on every week, yeah, we yeah. could have much shorter sure. podcasts. <laughs> so, okay, so in so you're talking about the bravado. And yeah. I just want to bring it around because on the other end of the spectrum in that episode is probably one of the most tender moments we have with Deacon, which is when Jennifer runs up and hugs him, you know, when he's first oh. reunited with everyone. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I, oh, it's just a sigh. I mean, we've seen him gradually opening up, right, to people, but yeah. Jennifer seems to always bring out this tenderness in him that, I think is kind of unique among all of the other. Well, he's, he, he, you know, I think he loved her from the end of season two. The minute he says crazy's making sense. <laughs> and, and, and that's the moment where he goes, you guys are, you know, it's like the jokers, like you're all schemers and planners, but listen to the crazy person. And I'm one of them. So, you know, often Deacon and Jennifer were the canaries in the coal mine that nobody was listening to because of their past, because of the lens to which people viewed them. Like Deacon could never shake uh, for, it took a very long time for him to shake the, uh, you know, sarcastic asshole, uh, thing and and the brutal the brutal sadomasochist like and jennifer had a hard time shaking in the crazy we in that one scene i think it was in season three the line got cut there's a moment when he's not on the witness and she's seeing ghosts and then he's sort of obsessing to himself and he looks up and he sees that she's really upset and he comes around the table and he leans against the table and he kind of puts his hands on her shoulders and he's like Talk to them, write it down. Da, da, da. But there was a line where I looked at uh, Emily and I said, I think I improvised it. Uh, I said, uh, you're not crazy. And she looked at me and said, uh, she, she was like, Emily's like off screen. She was like, wow, no one said that to Jennifer yet. Mm-hmm. And Deacon's the first person to say it to her. And so that was a important thing. So even if it didn't make it to the screen, that's in their relationship is she doesn't, he doesn't judge her until obviously he thinks she betrayed them and he locks her up, but he doesn't kill her. He just locks her up. Uh, when she helps Ethan get away and all of that stuff, uh, helps Cassie and, and Cole, like she becomes the enemy for a little bit until he actually helps her escape. Yeah, he's like, but- Where do you want to go here? Yeah. Yeah. But even then, that's a huge – I felt watching that that was a huge moment. Like, huge. Even, even though she did that, you could just see that Deacon is like – it's such inner turmoil, right? And it has to do with – like, he hates seeing her locked up. He told her, yeah. I think yeah. earlier in the season, we're not going to lock you yeah. up. Yeah. No, exactly. He says that. He's like, I'm not, nobody's going to lock you up. Not, not as long as I'm around. And he's the one that locks her up. So but it's she just like you said about terrifying. the sibling thing. Like, he can only take it so far. She has yeah. sort of a pass. You know, he's not going to kill her. Yeah. He's not going to. He's yeah. only going to. He's the big brother. He's the big brother. He's really good at being a big brother. Yeah. You definitely. know? And so that's because that's what he knows. That's his dynamic. And so interesting, like I said earlier, what he was seeking in Cole, he got in Jennifer, which is their bond. No, that's uh, not great. at all. <laughs> <laughs> Who, yeah, I mean, we always say that Beep throws the feels grenades, but Todd, man, you're an assassin. 
I'm a ninja. I'm an emotional ninja. <laughs> Um, can you, after that scene, although I, I was curious, just knowing what a huge fan you are of genre stuff, um, just with like on Twitter and things like that, did it, yeah. is there an inside joke or did it kill you to say that you snooze through Tolkien? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I, I think it's hilarious, but if you actually stop and go, um, I think Deacon liked reading Tolkien, but he thought the movies were too long. So oh. he's a big reader, and yeah. he's like, books didn't die in the apocalypse, boys. Uh, I think I think if you think about how old he was when he probably saw Lord of the Rings, he would have been like six or seven. Mm, so long. So long for a seven-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I sat my daughter to watch them, and she was, you know... <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. Yeah, we spread it out over. You know, I came back to it a year later, and she was much more able. So I think I just thought it was it was hilarious, and, and yet he knows the reference, which is tells you something else about it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, well, um, so that um, can you tell us a little bit about just because I know that it's we got questions about it, and I know it's a fan favorite, but that the knife scene between Deacon and Jennifer, um where you're playing a lot of different layers <laughs> and we don't, where he's as an audience telling her to give it back it. to him. Yeah. That one. Yeah. In Demon. Yeah. I mean, he knows, he knows what's, he knows what, here's why he knows what happens is because she told him. Right. Right. Cause she was there. So to have old Jennifer say, make sure you give this to me when the time comes, it's imperative that I get it or else you and I won't be here to have this conversation. So, and, and I, I'm not sure if, does she still say, uh, yeah, but why are you pre presenting it all theatrically? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Deacon rarely does things that are precious, if you will, mm -hmm. where he, especially with Jennifer, which is a lot of it is so much about kind of the bounce between them, um, for him to lean in and be super earnest it only happens a few times in their relationship because he's just much more of her, her ally and her, her sidekick uh, to each other. Like they, they're, they're just so fun together. Um, so when he does something and he looks at her eyes, even she also knows, <coughs> um, she knows she's a primary. She knows things mean something. And if this is going to mean something, it, he wouldn't be doing this unless it was important. And I don't have all the pieces here. Especially at the point that he does it. I mean, it's such an awkward time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If he had told her, you have to take this because uh, I'm going to get my head chopped off, she would probably try and intervene and stop mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. So he couldn't give her all of it. Uh, he just had to make sure she understood why it was important or that it was important. Um, and then you pay it off so well. This is the part where we run. Um, <laughs> Her Marge Simpson of it all. <laughs> Why does old Jennifer look like she's lived like twelve lives? I mean, I mean she has. She, <coughs> she always reminded it. she always reminded me of Agra from Dark Crystal. Yeah, but she's roughly the same age as Jones, and I mean Jones um, is like awesome, and Jennifer just yeah. But Jones Jones lived in a facility. That's she true. lived in a, and she's been chasing voices in her head her entire life. Yeah, you know it, it gets a little hard on you. When uh, 
<laughs> Actually, I think she might be younger than Jones. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because anytime we figure out that Jones is actually Gen X or, or borderline yep. Gen X millennial, it really messes with your Blows head. Blows your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Blows your mind. It makes us uncomfortable at how much we've achieved in our lives. Let's just put it that way. Hey, we have decades <laughs> to invent time travel. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> Plenty of time. Um, We had a quick, uh, very specific, but I was it was actually hilarious how many people were curious about it. Mm-hmm. Who have zeroed in on that Deacon earlier on in the series has the hyena burger t-shirt. Yeah. And and then later Jennifer has it. And so yeah. what what's the story there? Oh, you guys want pillow talk. It's not bad. <laughs> um, no, we don't. No, I was actually well, yeah, they did. But also where'd the t-shirt come from? <laughs> okay, so so when we were outfitting Deacon for season two, and we wanted because there's the little temporal shift. And Deacon suddenly dresses way cooler than he did before. He suddenly is dressed more Han Solo-y, mm-hmm. um, which is how how Terry pitched Deacon to me for season two. He goes, he's sociopathic Han Solo. I'm like, you've read my dream journal. <laughs> <laughs> did you keep it on set? <laughs> I, st- I, I still have the, I have the jacket. I own the jacket. And I still have my hyena burger shirt. Um so while we're sort of outfitting him in the cool jacket that has, like, the left arm has the hash marks of everybody I've killed with my knife, and then the right arm has his brother's uh, West 7 jacket, a swath of leather, um, I'm like, he should have, like, a cartoon print. And so, much like our conversation, because it just feels like the guy that would go, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we started going through, like, what Universal Studios properties like could it be transformers could it be a this or like atari or like like what kind of kind of pop culture shirt could he wear that could be cool and iconic and then i said well what if it's like what if we sort of stay world buildy and uh like big kahuna burger is in the uh, quentin tarantino verse where you sort of see it pop up in different iterations but it's this sort of through line so what if it's like something like that and then i asked terry what is um what is a monkey's natural predator in the wild and then he he's like boom we're i'm tra- trying on jackets and pants and stuff and he goes hyena so he's like hyena I go and so we're like hyena burger and then i uh i went home and started sketching uh just some logo ideas cartoon logo ideas and then he sent my uh iterations to the art department who did a they they did a version of it which is the version you see on the t-shirt and they're the ones that came up with it's in the meat which i love the idea of because that's sort of a it's sort of a wink at the body in the himalayas of the virus it's in the meat yeah um and so so then once the hyena burger thing existed it's part of the world and i think there's one there's one scene i think in prague where she's eating hyena burger she's literally like coal right she brings it to Cole and he's eating hyena burger. So they made a wrapper and then, um, she named the, she named her little group, the hyenas after that, not after that, like, like chronologically in the show after that. Right. But I like to think that time traveling Jennifer went back and created the franchise as a, you know, just as supplemental income. <laughs> nice. So she's the CEO wearing the t-shirt of her own company. 
So, hyena burger and unicorns. That's what she yes. yeah. Well, the unicorn torpedoed, uh, right? The, the, the unicorn yeah. announcement torpedoed Markridge. So, this was her second business. <laughs> right? Yeah. Hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we heard, I think it was Christopher Monfett mentioned a cast axe throwing contest. Of which I was not a witness because. Uh, okay. Because it seems my. Like you my would. I know, but my family is in Los Angeles, and so it often the every time they would do an axe throwing thing, I would have come back to you know parent. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I I missed it every time, and I, I and I was sad to miss it because I would have loved to watch uh, Barbara go. What is a throwing axe? Um. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so I miss the I miss the axe throwing because it just happened to fall on two weekends when I was uh, either back in Los Angeles or uh, working something else elsewhere. Got sadly. it. Sadly, yeah. So, did you have a favorite time period just for aesthetics to get to play dress up in? Oh, I, I think it's probably all the same one that everybody else says, which was the when we were all in dressed like Amadeus, like. I really dug. I really dug the the tri cornered hat uh, and uh, the uh, hey Chuckaboo. Uh, <laughs> those costumes. Those costumes were really fun because they were so far away from what uh, he normally dresses as. And you know, and and I also got the Don Johnson outfit, so that was awesome. <laughs> I got to I got to, I got to Miami Vice in that when he had to McFly. <laughs> and so it, are we were were Cassie and Jennifer supposed to be two versions of Madonna? It's like desperately secret Susan and like a virgin. No, I think I think actually Jennifer is Cindy Lauper. Oh, oh that okay. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Girls just want to have fun, Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. Got it. Isn't she? And, and what's the name of her album? She's so. Isn't she so crazy? What, is it? what was the name of? Now I gotta look up a Cindy Lauper album. <laughs> it's that meta. So because of Cindy Lauper, yeah. Uh, it might be. I'm not sure, but I think she was Cindy Lauper, Madonna, just a mishmash of that. And why do I feel like like uh, Cassie was was like square pegs, like Sarah Jessica Parker, or something like that, like Amanda Shue, or uh, what's her name? Uh, Shoe, Elizabeth Shoe from Back to the Future, which would make sense too. Got it. Okay. I'm not positive, but I don't think she was, she was not Madonna. Amanda was not Madonna. Uh, but I think, I think Jennifer was like a mash of either Cindy, Cindy Lauper and Madonna. Yeah. Got it. Cindy Lauper yeah. has a 1983 album called She's So Unusual. So. She's so unusual. She's so unusual. That's what it is. That's what uh, it is. That might which, be which, it. which really works, really works well for uh, for Jennifer. And yeah. then, uh, and then she was Joan Crawford, like Dynasty '80s, when she was playing her mother. Oh, totally. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Although I think Olivia doesn't get enough props in that episode for just like killing the like. She kind of it reminds me of like Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl. Yeah. Or, or, or she was a Nagel print. If you if you rem- yep. if, if you get that reference, yeah, she looked like a Duran Duran album cover. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Rio yeah. Go- Gozer. Yeah. Ah. Um. Okay. So we have to ask you mm-hmm. the great the great question. Do you Uh-oh. think Cassie stopped the countdown? No. 
Oh, yes, yes. Do I think she caused the Red Forest? Do I think she caused the Red Forest? Oh, my no. God. You mean, Do I you think... Just- Okay. You just made my stomach like drop out. <laughs> no, no, I, no. I, I think um, you know. I listen. I listen to Sean's thing, and he's such a provocateur. Um, I, 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 I think. Um, I think. I think it's a happy ending, and I don't think it's a. It's a. Uh, it's an artificial happy ending, which is what the Red Forest is. Uh, I think it's a true happy ending where two uh, two people can who sacrificed everything or all these people sacrificed everything to uh, put the world back together. So I think the world got put back together. Yeah, but I'm 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 not a cynic that way. Like <laughs> I think I think uh, I think the red forest is is artificial when we say it's it's a happy ending. If it's just sort of repeating at one moment, like that's soma. You know, that's, that's a blissed out, it's a drug trip. It's not genuine because, because without, without the temperance of sadness, there is no true happiness. So if you're in the perfect moment for the rest of your life, that isn't true happiness because it's just, uh, it's a drug trip because hmm. there's nothing tested, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing to hold it up against. There's nothing earned, you know. Now, did, when you all were filming it, um, and, or when you read the script and when you all fi- were filming it, were you all aware of that alternative take? Or was it something that then, as you saw the edited version with the red leaf, you were like, oh. Well, no, even the script, the script even said, and it closes up on a, a leaf, but I think the leaf literally, it's literally autumn. So mm-hmm. It's, it means change. Things are changing. Like life is moving on and going through natural cycles again, such as seasons. Right. And so I think it's, it's, it says this red is a, is a, a true red. This is, this is a red. It's not a like a twilight zone ending. And again, we go back to this thing of, you know, the ending is the one that you choose. But Jones would not choose to die of radiation sickness in a cold facility alone with coal. Like that, that wouldn't be the ending she chose, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if, how could she choose both if right. her death in front of coal and him walking up to the thing, what version of anybody's perfect world is coal being alone in a facility, having every fiber of his being ripped apart by light? Do you know what I mean? Like no one—that's no one's perfect moment. It's shocking. And so it's shocking. <laughs> it's, yeah. And I, th- I and I and I I like. I mean, I love the fact that it stimulates discussion. But when I read the script, I wasn't left with questions of if and if and if. And I think and I think showing and then why wouldn't. The minute, why would you have to make Cassie wait all that time to, f- to have Cole show up at the house of Cedar and Pine? If, if right when she hit it, wouldn't they be smooching? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or didn't hit it? Like, why would you have to go through all this stuff to get to the perfect moment? I thought the red, per- the red forest was just instant. Right, and you it live in a perfect moment. And destroy time. Yeah, she wouldn't have it to suddenly take be time yeah. to destroy time because like, just... time doesn't exist. Yeah, you don't have to ramp up to it. The perfect moment isn't her wishing Cole was there. Yeah. Now, I guess the answer to that, or or the, not the answer, but maybe the counterpoint to that would be, and I hate that I'm always devil's advocate when it's not what I think. <laughs> like I do think she stopped the countdown, but would be because these people are so selfless, they wouldn't 
find happiness in this alternative reality unless they thought it was the product of self-sacrifice. But then I think you do have to leap to be like, Cassie basically is creating a new reality for everybody. Um, but yeah. And then you're also assuming that the Red Forest has, you know, is somehow sentient and then it knows what people need to be able to reach that moment, which is kind of yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, and and then you're also suggesting that Kathy's perfect moment isn't Cole's perfect moment, so they're not together in the Red Forest. What if Cole's perfect moment is I didn't shoot Ramsey, or eating a cheeseburger, yeah. or eating a che- or yeah, yeah. Chicken what if that's what if I mean? So are you saying there's infinite realities of infinite perfect moments, and that they're not actually sharing it with each other, but it's all in their heads? Mm-hmm. I think that's what Sean like, was saying, right? I mean, I don't like I it. I guess. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think it necessarily tells the story that, that you know, Terry set out to sort of show run. I think mm-hmm. Terry is Terry is ultimately a romantic. And, and if you look at the, the movies that influence him, I mean, Back to the Future ends in a ridiculously idealized reality. And if you if you actually, truth be told, if 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 this is a story about like time screwed, time got screwed up ultimately, so that Cole and Cassie could be together. Yeah. Because had time not go, gotten screwed up, Cole never would have been born. Right. But because because of the plague, because time got screwed up, and then and that Hannah went back and gave birth to him, he exists. And so once a version of him exists in time, then they could be together. Because, you know, Jones could pull that little version of him and leave it in in the time stream. Just not all the other versions of him that led up to that. Right. I do think ultimately it's a disservice to Cassie's character overall to say that she she would make that decision for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I and and, and she is she is ultimately a you know, she's a doctor. She's a do no harmer. And I think you know, the, I I love the fact that the temptation's there because that's good writing, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, Amanda played the conflict beautifully. Yeah. Throughout the whole but, season, yeah. 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 Well, amazingly, and they they laid it out and they they laid a case for it so that when you get to that moment, it wasn't just a video game push the button ending. It was uh, it was a it was a conflicted moment going yeah maybe they maybe they're right which I guess is you know is the truth of any afterlife uh, question you don't know until it happens but is it worth risking to find out if it's going to because what if you're wrong what if it's a bleak living hell right it's also a really good representation when you're uh, trying to suss out the us versus them like wait are we the good guys are we the one working toward the right thing yeah. or, or were yeah. they doing it the whole time yeah well yeah it's yeah. far more nuanced than like your typical like you know comic book movie yeah. bad guy absolutely like 100%. there there were points that there were points in that last season where with Shaw like I I get it right I mean yeah. it's yeah. really getting at something that like who hasn't experienced that loss and right. wanting to go right. back. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which was your uh, favorite deacon to play? Well, you know what? I think I, – I, oh, don't make me pick. Um, <laughs> I think for me, like I had a blast in season one because I was blowing in there as a guest star and I got to just kind of swing with two bats um, and have a lot of fun. Uh, but when – 
Terry said we're, we're turning him into a series regular. I think season two was really exciting for me because it was like, oh, wow, I know what I thought about this guy, but now we're, they've, they've put him in a different situation and I get to find out more about him. So season two Deacon was really fun because he was the one with a, with a foot in both versions still. Mm-hmm. He was still a scoundrel, but then was slowly becoming a hero. Um, and then, but I like them all for different reasons. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know because they because they just kept evolving him and giving him stuff, new stuff to do. That I like them all, but I would say season, going into season two was the most exciting because it was just like, wow, this character that was just kind of a two episode antagonist, they're really giving some uh, some credence to. Yeah. yeah, it was it was quite a feat, I think, to make us love him, you know, yeah. at the beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, as much as he definitely served a purpose, we kind of approached it, I think, like you did. Like, okay, this guy's definitely bad. He's he's going to well, propel yeah. us along a bit, and then we're going to move on. But it's like, uh, yeah. then you get, to, you know, all the way to the end when he dies, and we're having to pause it and stop yeah. and leave yeah. and call each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a really fun, and there's a really fun thing now. You know, so many people are binging the show, and everyone's uh-huh. like, "Oh, I just finished Daughters, and I have demons next." And you can just like almost feel the collective sharp <laughs> intake of breath. Like, oh man, <laughs> you're about to just get destroyed. <laughs> yeah, we're like, hilarious. you guys are done from here on out. Like eight through That's the hilarious. end. Like, just get your tissue yeah. box out. <laughs> But then, you know, Terry always said he wanted the finale to be Avengers. Like, he's like, he's like, I just wanted to get as many people. I mean, he talked about getting Eklund back. Like, he just wanted ah. to just really go, all right, we have put through through hell. Let's give them the time of their life, literally in the song. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, let's have so much fun now that we've had so much misery. Let's really give them a summer blockbuster and satisfy it and justify it. And let's get the gang back together and give people heroic entrances and just big popcorn fun. Oh, you did it. And it is, but it's also, I think that series finale is a complete (laughs) catharsis. Mm -hmm. Like it covers all of the human emotions, right? Like you're fist pumping, you're sobbing, you're, I mean, it just runs. But that's the, that's the best blockbusters, right? Like they are just CGI and punching. It's like, like the best blockbusters are blockbusters because you are taken on an emotional roller coaster. But I think we just had such a blast with the, the bigness and the epicness and the, the swashbuckle of it all. The thing that I found really cool about, about Deacon in the finale is his, his entrance, you know, is just so iconic and he's, you know, strutting into the song and he's got all this swagger, but (laughs) his exit is so um, muted and calm and it's just he and Jennifer. And like, that's what he doesn't know that relationship yet. And he doesn't understand what it means, but we do. And so it's just them kind of like, you know, for, for lack of a better term, just like walking off into the sunset together. Like, These here we go. <laughs> These two old friends. Here we go. We had another, we had an alt take because, because uh, Emily and I were improvising a lot on that walk away when she, there was one version where she says, uh, you shoot me. And then I go, yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever thought about what would be, 
to to the extent that Deacon has to do th- anything over again, what would be the hardest thing for him to try and keep a straight face during? <laughs> a straight face? Uh, or, well, I think the hardest thing would be the hardest thing would be having to shoot old Jennifer. Uh, Man. That would be the hardest because he would have to, because he knows she's going to die. So he's not just shooting her, he's killing her. And she knows, but she's also said, look, there will come a time where you're going to have to sacrifice yourself. This is just my time to do it at your hands. So if anybody's up for the task, it's you, Teddy. You know, our last chance to save the world, kiddo. Uh, <laughs> Stop! <laughs> right? He's an assassin. <laughs> right, and he is, and and I think that would be the hardest thing, especially since they do walk off arm in arm, and 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 these two have a bond that even exists in the fixed future. She's at his bar eating nuts, laughing at the bar fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so I think shooting Jennifer would have been the hardest thing for him to have to do again. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it was um, an accident the first time. Right. Do you think that's also his biggest regret that he would have done it the first time once he knew? Well, he knows he has to do it, right? But even Jennifer says when 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 the um, I forget the daughter's name that was chastising me, uh, she's like, "He shot mother," and then she's like, "And he feels bad." When he looked at him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so since you since you listen to us like obsess over something you made, when uh, can you think back on? Because it seems like you do. You both love genre entertainment, and you also have mm-hmm. done a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. Something that either when you were growing up or even as an adult, like just clicked with you that you were like, I love this, <laughs> and it was like sort of like your first great entertainment love or fandom. Well. The thunderclap that was Star Wars to eight-year-old Todd Stashwick, uh, <laughs> that that still echoes to this day. Like, like before Star Wars, I had Star Trek action figures and Planet of the Apes action figures, which is probably you know sowing the seeds of becoming an actor, sort of puppeting around characters. But then you know, sitting in that movie theater when that John John Williams music just blares uh i was just done i was done it was a love that's lasted a lifetime uh i i I love no other property more than than star wars and han solo was so formative if if aside from his cool swagger it could have been just as i've said this before just because eight-year-old me went he's got brown hair i have brown hair yeah oh my god that's such a thing that was like because with with i have brown hair and princess leia with brown hair and i was like she's like the only hero other than wonder woman that has brown hair (laughs) i must be just like him and my cousin was a blonde so he was luke uh but yeah nothing there's been no so and and so and so to and i get choked up thinking about this if you actually realize it terry metallis gave deacon his han solo you're all clear kid moment at the end when he shows up to give them the window to destroy the generator it's like han flying in and clearing out vader so that luke can shoot the thing and blow up the death star and he's and uh, you know and when i watched it because i didn't see the finale with terry i texted him like thank you he goes he goes i gave you your han solo ending my boy and he was like Aww. he's like i gave you your han solo and so that's so i mean Deacon's the Han Solo. He's the selfish guy who 
who then uh, does good, and and that and his entrance is is the yeehaw moment. It's the Millennium Falcon yeehaw moment. And so, yeah, nothing more than Star Wars. I mean, I have a lot of fandoms. I'm a Batman guy very much, but Star Wars is it. And very specifically, the 1977 A New Hope Mm -hmm. Star Wars. Uh, And I'm not original by saying it, but if you weren't there, you don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know what life was before it. And then suddenly everything, every other toy got put away. And it was Star Wars from that way forward. And as a grown-up, I've spent an inordinate amount of money on sideshow uh, collectibles. <laughs> now, do you find with your children, do yeah. they? first of all, do they enjoy it? And two, are they focused on different aspects of the Star Wars universe than you? Well, m- my daughter, uh, my son always enjoyed it uh but he was sort of brought up when we were really excited about the prequels and mm-hmm. then we saw them mm-hmm. um uh, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i mean fair, fair. yeah no well I, yeah. no i mean I, I i find i find the story uh riveting i find mm-hmm. the story riveting of the prequels um but my boy sort of came up in that because he was born in 98 mm-hmm. um <clears throat> but my daughter uh I was able to like go, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going, you're going to watch these in order of release. And I'm going to show you the non-specialized versions first. Mm -hmm. So she's, her indoctrination has been uh, a little more curated. Yeah. Like the Gen X experience, the correct way to experience Star Wars. Well, the way they were released. I mean, (laughs) the way, I mean, and I, I truly believe it's like, if this is the way George wanted you to see them, Mm -hmm. watch them this way, because this is the way he made them. Uh, so let's watch them this way. Now, my daughter has a lot of affection for Ray. Uh, she loves Sabine. She loves Ahsoka. Uh, oh yeah, Ahsoka. She and I are building a uh, an R two unit together. Oh, she's working on that with you. Yeah, Aww, I actually have a little awesome. Tumblr page. You can actually see videos of her, you know, doing her due diligence. I have a. Uh, it's called R two Me Too. Uh, oh my god, a, you're it's such a, it's an a, Awesome, like geek STEM girl supporting dad. That is awesome. Oh my God. Yeah, super fun. (laughs) And the other thing I do for my daughter is I'm her dungeon master. So I have a, I have a, 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 we have a game, a D&D game with her once a month uh, with her and five of her friends. And I DM that. Yeah, Yeah. super fun. So, uh, yeah. So in answer to your question, yes, they do share. My daughter is a cosplayer. She goes to as many cons. She's not been to, SDCC with me yet because that's like lowering her into a, a viper pit. But, uh, <laughs> and I'm a better father than that. Um, <laughs> but she'll, you know, like when she's, you know, 16 or 17, I'll take her to SDCC. But she's been to Long Beach, Anaheim. We go to as many different cons. She loves to cosplay and she loves to build her costumes. And so she is, she's in it to win it. What kind of characters does she play? Right now, it's all about, and it's not the creepy version, she's all about the furries. It's all about building big furry heads and paws and creating characters and drawing them and making badges for them. So uh, all the the girls are into uh, Five Nights at Freddy's and furries. Okay. And it's again, it's not the. It's I say that, and people go, "Oh no!" Uh, so <laughs> we've done our due diligence, and we've done our research, and we know what she's googling. Uh, and it's actually, it's actually very sweet, and it's very, um, it's very fun. But she's cosplayed as 
The Empty Child from Doctor Who. She's cosplayed as video game characters. She's been Gamora. Um, oh, wow. That's yeah. fully committing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, she's in yeah. She's in to win. Yeah. Can I tell you my Han Solo-related non-due diligence parenting moment? <laughs> that I will be paying for therapy, like, forever for this. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So we went to go see um, – Oh my God, why am I? The Force Awakens. Force Awakens. And because we're like such huge fans, it was like my love of Star Wars trumped my parental duties. And we didn't look up the plot. Like we just went in, right? And my my kids all dressed up. Guess what my son dressed up as? Guess who he dressed up as? Oh no, a certain Corellian. No, he dressed up like Han Solo. Uh -uh. Oh God. And then sitting next to his father, watched Han Solo be murdered by his son. And we were like, oh. People just stared at us as we walked out of the theater like, you're horrible parents. (laughs) And we were. And we were. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So Han Solo may have like a whole other like – Super messed up connotation <laughs> for this yeah, for this it. upcoming generation than he did yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah, but I love that that was Deacon's Han Solo moment. That's so great. Yeah, kind of is right. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. That's great. I'm like I said, I said what what show? I go as an actor. I'm so spoiled because who gets a glorious death and then a glorious entrance re-entry yeah. like <laughs> like like only a show like this can actually have the the coolest moment for the character after he's been killed <laughs> absolutely yeah it's so crazy can you tell us just about your current projects like where can we see you next uh i uh, so um Coming next year, and actually the trailer dropped today, so you can see me, uh, for the Disney Channel live-action Kim Possible. I played Dr. Draken in that. Um, I'm currently shooting a small role in a small film that I can't really disclose, but uh, it's just a lot of fun. Um, and I'm writing a lot and pitching. I was, I was writing, uh, Suicide Squad 2, um, co-writing that, but, uh, that, there was a changing of the guard and now, uh, James Gunn is writing that. And I wish him all the best because I'm a fan. Um, but so now I'm going to be pitching, uh, some television shows, uh, some original, uh, ideas that I have for TV. Um, and, in the meantime, yeah, I'm shooting this movie till the end of the year. Uh, then I go home for Christmas, or to the end of December. Then I go home for Christmas, and then I've been I'll be doing um, like publicity and stuff for Kim Possible, where I play uh, just a crazy mad scientist, a crazy supervillain <laughs> in a, a big blue coat uh, who has a maniacal laugh, and I'm just picking scenery out of my teeth. But um, <laughs> We can't picture they, that you, at all. No, yeah, at all. Could you imagine? Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was so much fun because, like I said, to go from 12 Monkeys, which, again, was whisper acting a lot of the time, to go to, like, you know, screaming, I will take over the world! That, kind of, <laughs> that, Wait, that sort of, yeah. Someone but, sent us an article asking about whether you were writing, and I'm going to say these two things together, and it makes me so excited I just want it to be true, something about space pirates? A show that yeah. oh I had written I had written years ago uh, we sold a pilot 
to the sci-fi channel called Clandestine. And it was about a family of uh, like a clan of gypsy pirates, like a clan of 23. And the, the, the elevator pitch was this clan of pirates uh, are running from, you know, the, the, the empire or the government of that current space culture. Uh, and so they happened to stumble upon what would be the equivalent of the Starship Enterprise, but it's derelict. There's no one in it. So they sneak aboard, shave off their beards, put on the uniforms, and pretend to be the crew. Um, Someone so just that, presented that as new news recently, and now I am angry because I want to watch it. <laughs> I know, I know. We we uh, what had happened was uh, we sold the show to the Sci Fi Channel. We developed it for a year. Me and uh, my writing partner Dennis Calero. He is the uh, artist who is my collaborator on the comic that I write, Devil Inside. Uh, which is a webcomic. You can read it for free online. Um, and we've been writing that for a long time. And then what had happened, uh, Universal optioned that. We pitched it as a TV series. We didn't sell it, but then they bought the space show idea. We developed it for a year. And then once again, there was a changing of the guard at Sci-Fi. And so our show sort of fell through the cracks. Uh, instead, they picked up a, a delightful show called 12 Monkeys. <laughs> No, no, yeah. really? And so our development, oh. one of our development executives, uh, Stacy Fung, uh, was one of our development executives on Clandestine. She was then uh, one of our executives on uh, on 12 Monkeys. So, but, and completely unrelated. Like, I just went in and auditioned for 12 Monkeys. It had nothing to do with my relationship with the Sci-Fi Channel. It was just an audition. Wow. What yeah. And so so now uh now that project just kind of sits somewhere. I would love to make it because mm-hmm. uh I love I loved writing it and uh Gail Ann Hurd was one of our producers. Um it was it was terrific and the script is terrific and the possibilities were kind of endless. So as I said it was kind of the Space Riches, uh, which was another show that I was on. So that yeah, these these ne'er do wells pretending to be good people. Uh, yeah. Ah. And so that was clandestine. Clandestine. Ah. Well, trust yeah, was, me, if cool. we had any power whatsoever to do anything <laughs> at all, all of you guys' projects well, would be come you guys are you know, doing, in January. <laughs> you guys are doing a good thing by at least keeping the flame alive of, of this you know, this little engine that could because we put so much love and so much time of our lives into making this show and you know we have a we have a very modest passionate audience i think when it reaches hulu in all four seasons i think we are going to see a jump because we know how special it is Mm -hmm. uh but having you guys out there after the show is aired still making podcasts about it tells us that uh, we did something right Oh, Oh, you absolutely did. Absolutely. And I know that I've actually talked to some friends recently, you know, who do recaps on different shows or whatever. But the the issue with this show and with the finale is it brought it to such a point where, you know, the ending elevated the entire series. And it it, when it all came together, not just those last two episodes, but when everything was sewn it became a masterpiece. I mean, it, yeah, it really it did, is. and so I, I'm so proud. Yeah, here's yeah. a bit of a, here's a bit of trivia. Uh, years ago, I was um, auditioning for a television show, uh, and I was up for 
they wanted to test me for a role that I wouldn't have gotten because the guy that got it is the perfect guy for the role. Uh, but I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to go to Canada to shoot a, a, a reboot of another franchise uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel, and uh, that was I was I was supposed to test for Gaius Baltar. Um, um what? <laughs> yeah, and so I I was like like you know what I think I want to be, and, and again I was never going to get it because. Because James is is Gaius Baltar, he's perfect. I would have just gone in there to go to remind them of what they didn't want, because uh, they always wanted James because <laughs> it was the role he was meant to play. But it was one of these where I read the script and uh, I liked the script, and I went and I did my first audition. Like they want to test you for it, and I'm like, yeah. So I turned down the test for Gaius Baltar. Uh, and cause I wanted to do half hour sitcoms at the time because I, you know, having come from second city and I was up for Saturday night live and I just wanted to stay in comedy land. Um, and so I, yeah, I turned it down. And so I think, I think 12 monkeys was, was the universe giving me, it was giving me an, it was my oops loop. Uh, it, it was like, okay, okay, you're going to get another shot at this, Todd. You're going to go do a reboot of an existing franchise in Canada on the Sci-Fi Channel. Are you going to say yes to this one, you jackhole? Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll go, yeah, I'll go. This is, this is your reboot. And then I got to work, and then I got to work with Ty, and I got to work with, uh, with, with James, and James and I never worked together. We just drank whiskey together in Prague. Yeah. <laughs> ah, so great. Well, one of my favorite scenes is that scene with uh, with uh, with Michael and uh, me and Eklund uh, talking to the army guys from the past. With the pacifists. <laughs> And he's and he's hiding, yes, and he's hiding behind me. And we do this one thing. We we actually improvise this moment where he finishes my sentence with he he gives me the number where I go. It's uh, it's been about and then he does the math immediately yeah. in his head. Gives the number. <laughs> and so we have this moment where he, where he tells me the number and I repeat it right after him. It's one of my single favorite moments. In uh, hey, got fella. Yeah, <laughs> funny story. Yeah, I just love that scene. I love that oh, scene. Oh, so great! I remember oh. hearing yeah. that you that you loved him. That must be a really cool experience. Oh, I loved him. Yeah, I love. I mean, look, I, again, I, I I never hesitate to to fanboy out on like Jake Carnes and Christopher Lloyd. Like these guys, these guys have been knocking it out of the park uh, for such a long time. And, and Christopher Lloyd is a legend. Yes, and. Yes. Uh, and to get a chance to share the screen with them, or at least share a show with them, even if I don't get to do scenes with them, um, uh, it's, it's just such an honor, a, a pleasure. That's why uh, I'm a fanboy, and so and this is the stuff I consume. And so to be able to make it and see people respond to a show that I'm on the way that I respond to shows uh, is very heartening, and it's very uh, touching. And and uh, and to to make a show that I would watch is really fun. Yeah. Well, Jay Carnes brought a delightful bit of of uh, layers, but also levity to the show, which is really, so good. Really oh my fun. gosh, he's he so was good. great. He's like one of so the best good. recurring characters on TV. Love period, him, right? love him, Agent yeah. Gale. Um, well, love thank him. you so much for taking so much time Absolute of your day to pleasure. talk to two fangirls. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, we are we are cut from the same cloth. Like, I mean, just, <laughs> like just the, I mean, I love nerding out, and I love nerding out about good TV, and and the fact that I get to be on the good TV that we're nerding out about, it's just, it's kind of, it's nothing but pineapples. 
So mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. we let you go, though, Todd. Oh no! Yes. Do I, I have to do it. Um, too many, several too many, of our several too many people, people asked. Too many and people also asked. specifically though, our friend Amy has asked if you might give us a few bars of "Don't You Forget About Me." Don't you forget about me? I'll be alone, dancing, you know it, baby. There you go. Thank Hi. you so uh, much. I They're lost. gonna so die. Let's, you don't let's, even. Let's know. all let's all rave out with 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 the lala, shall we? <laughs> I say la 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 la. Come on, la 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 la. I think the internet got us off at some point. Uh, I can't because I've like lost the ability uh, to the speak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Incredible. Thank you, guys. What a hoot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did that just happen? That uh. voice. <laughs> yes. I know. This is what we were saying, that if, if we could just get Todd Stashwick and Allison Downs to read all of the books. All the books. <laughs> For all of the books on tape. That would be the best. Thank you so much to Todd for spending so much time with us. Um, I think it's just really special. And particularly because Beep and I were talking, we were talking offline that I don't know if there was a podcast interview after Deacon's triumphant return, right? Like when we realized that he knew everything um, and had that, you know, one of the greatest, like, comebacks for a character like ever in TV. So I'm just really grateful we got a chance to hear his thoughts. If there is one, though, or was one, somebody needs to get it to me. I definitely want to hear it. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right, so just some programming notes. Our next episode, which will be out next week, is our rewatch of 108 and 109, Yesterday and Tomorrow. Erin, um, our rebloggin' hood on Twitter from the Metastation Pod, is rejoining us for that. And then after that, we will be rewatching what are our episodes coming up? 110 and 11. Yeah, 110 and 111 with Selena Wilkin from Hypable. So we've got lots of good rewatch stuff. Coming to you soon. Beep if you don't have anything else. I'm good. All right. I think. (laughs) Well, we're not good. We're going to go. Don't forget to ask me again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We're going to go do our countdown to calm. But in the meantime, we'll see you soon.